morning's message is called Drought. It is Sunday, it is June 7th, 2009, and our message this morning will be called Drought. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things that are happening in the news right now, and my hope is not to be critical about our nation or our nation's leader or even world events. It would be simply to look into the Word and find some direction for our lives, some hope for our circumstances. But when we see our nation call upon the nation of Israel to give up land, when we see the President of the United States encourage the leadership in Israel to cede land for peace, land for peace, that's kind of funny. We should ask the American Indians how that works, land for peace. But when we see that happening, when we begin to look around us and see that as a nation we have more sympathy for Islam than we do Christianity, when we begin to express on a worldwide level concern about how Islam is viewed, I become concerned. It's, it's difficult not to. Having said that, from a biblical perspective you will see things have been much worse than this many times in the past. And in dark hours, there is an opportunity for bright light to shine. I don't want to scare anybody today, but in my heart I feel a drought coming. Righteous people have no fear in a drought. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 30. I want to talk to you about the standard that is the Word of God. Whether we're talking about the Word that is embodied in the person of Jesus called the Christ, or we're talking about the Torah, the living law of God that Jesus personifies, or we're talking about just the Bible, everything except the maps and the concordances that you hold in your hand, we are talking about something that the Bible calls a double-edged sword. Double-edged meaning that it cuts both ways, in both directions. The Word has beautiful blessings in it. It also has horrendous, horrible curses in it. And they are found in the same book. The same book contains both life and death. In Deuteronomy 30, look at the 15th verse. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. He said, I set before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. How can one thing be all of those? How can something both be life and prosperity as well as death and destruction? This goes all the way through the Word, even to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is said by the twelve minor prophets to be a day of gloom and darkness. A horrible day. And yet Peter, referring to that day and quoting those prophets, said it would be a glorious day. Awful, not in the sense that it was bad, but full of awe. How can one day both be good and bad? How can one word be both good and and bad. Truthfully, it's all good, but life and death. Sometimes we have made God so simple. We have made Him a great Santa Claus in the sky who simply gives you your wish list. We've made Him our personal genie. 
When we ask in the right formula, poof, it happens. All you need to know is the right formula. Abracadabra. None of these things are accurate. The Word, our God, His personification in the man Jesus, whether the book or the walking man, is a standard by which all men everywhere will be judged by. Some will find life by being judged according to this standard. Some will be found to be condemned or in death when judged by this standard. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, loving the Lord your God will produce life. There is no person upon the planet anywhere that if he loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength will not find life. And prosperity as God defines prosperity, not as the ridiculous money preachers do. Amen. But the reverse is also true. There is no one, nowhere on the planet, of no ethnicity, of no background, of no socioeconomic level, that if they ignore the Word of God, if they treat it with the contempt that is expressed in apathy, will not find death and destruction. Wherever you are, the Word is the sword that either blesses you and defends you, or it is the Word that cuts you and condemns you. And the only difference is not that the sword changes or changes direction. It is what side of the Word of God are you on? This is the paramount question among individuals. And individuals make up cities, and cities make up states, and states make up countries. So it is the question that is before our nation and every other nation. What side of the Word of God are you on? The Word will cut even between joint and sinew, bone and marrow, thought and motive, soul and spirit. And it will divide that which God can bless from that which God cannot bless. I want to show you a familiar scripture, and the problem is that it is familiar. Turn with me to John 3. You never go to a baseball game and see Exodus 24-7 on a banner. You will never see that. I don't know why. Maybe we should go and put one up. But never have you turned on the TV and went, Wow, ESPN Ocho, ESPN the 8th. Obscure Sports Network. Look, a banner. It says Exodus 24-7. What do you see? You always see the same banner, right? John 3-16. At least one of you has watched ESPN before. <laughs> Exodus 24-7 says, We will do all that the Lord our God has commanded us. You don't see those banners. What you see is John 3-16 without the 15th verse, without the 17th, without the 18th verse, just John 3-16. Because this is all our nation wants to know. We want to know that we can be saved. We want to know that there is salvation. We don't want to do anything about it. We don't want to walk any differently because of it. We don't want to consider what happens if we're not obedient. We only want to know, bless me, bless me, bless me. Me, Johnny, Susie, us four, no more. Bless us to hell with the rest of the world. You know America makes up 6% of the world's population? Six. Do that math. How often are you on the news? We even put ourselves in the center of the world map. That's a little audacious, isn't it? We got one, one 
foreigner in here? And she says, yes. <laughs> we have more than one foreigner in here. We're all foreigners to the economy of God. He's included you just like so. John's going to be our Vietnamese apostle. Mario's going to take Texas, the lower half of Texas, by storm. And Abel saves my life every time I go to Mexico. <laughs> John 3.16, what a beautiful verse. Why don't we go ahead and read it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only, His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Man, that is good news, isn't it? Mm -hmm. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. That's even better news. Whoever believes in Him is, in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in Him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. He didn't send the world, the, His Son into the world to condemn it because it is already damned. He did not send His Son into the world to pronounce judgment because the world had already been judged. Sometimes we act like... Hey, it's funny, people come to me for marriage counseling and they sit in front of me and usually the first meeting is full of the same thing. We don't have it all right, but we're really not that bad. Really? Why are you here? We have this thing. We don't want to be perceived as that bad. What is that bad? Well, as long as I'm better than him or her, then, then I'm all right. You need to understand something. We are all part of the same diseased human stock that is Adam. Every one of us is born in death and you are damned from birth except the grace of God. I'm not speaking about babies and I don't want to get into theological discussion on that level today. You live a life that is godly, that sanctifies your children, then we'll talk about that. Otherwise, you should be afraid, very afraid, all of you, for you, for your children, for everybody around you. So if you are already in this state of needing help, and the Word promises life, but also promises death based on how you relate to it, we have a great responsibility. A great responsibility not only to embrace life ourselves, but to embrace it in a way that can be seen. How often do you see the way someone believes? How often do you see the way someone feels? There are people in this world that you know immediately when they're happy. It shows up in the corners of their mouth, praising God. There are people in this world that you know immediately when they believe something because it shows up in their actions that are praising God. But we have too many poker faces among Christians. I love the Lord. <laughs> Praise His name. Everything in my life is miserable. I'm miserable. I make everyone around me miserable. But I'm full of joy with the good news. Right? We've created entire cookie-cutter sets of denominations that says it's okay to be that way. This is just what we call reverence. If what you call reverence, everyone around you would call misery, that's called data denial. Data denial. If everything around you says it's 77 degrees in the room, you can claim that it's 60 if you want, but you would be wrong. Our God will judge us based on how we react to His Word. Now that we're talking about the climate, why don't we turn to 2 Timothy. You all proud of me for squeezing a few New Testament verses in here? It won't last. All the T's are together in the New Testament. 
makes it nice, easy to find them even in a new Bible. In 2 Timothy, we're going to be in the third chapter. I want to talk to you about the climate. Y'all say it with me, bad to worse. Bad to worse. The Bible defines the climate as bad, condemned. How do you get worse than condemned? How could it be worse than being condemned to, let's say, death row? Well, you got to hang out with the others that are. That's what's worse. The only thing that's worse than having a death sentence is being around other people that have the same death sentence. Because when your life is death and destruction, what do you do? You spread death and destruction. From bad to worse. You know, it's funny. There was a point in my life where I thought something was wrong with everyone else. There's a point in my life where everywhere I went, no matter where it was, from second grade till the day I got born again, I found myself in the center of other men, squared off with some young man, throwing our fist at each other, and I was convinced for all of those years, the problem was with the other young man. The problem was with the circle of people. The problem was the circumstances. The problem was everything but me. And an amazing thing happened. The moment I reacted to the Word of God in a right way, He fixed the source of the problem. Me. If you're blaming everyone around you, your ex-wife, your mother, your father, your brother or sister who was always favored and you weren't, your children who don't respect you, your boss who hates you, whatever it is, you might need to start in a circle that includes your own two feet and then widen the perimeter. Our lives are life and prosperity when we react rightly to the Word. They are death and destruction when we do not. There are no exceptions. Not for the second row, not for the back row. There are no exceptions. I set before you life and death today. If you have death and destruction in your life, you have you to blame. If you have life and prosperity in your life, you have God to thank. There are no exceptions to this. But you don't understand. They did this to me. I understand. But I am not going to make God a liar for your benefit. The Word lays it out very plainly. Does this mean that men and women of God do not go through extreme difficulties? No, that's what our message is about today. The righteous suffer through the drought with the wicked. We all do. If our president attacks Israel, our nation becomes an enemy of God, and you are a member of this nation, although you are not an enemy of God, it will affect your daily life. Thank God you live in a country where you have the right to vote. You have some influence in this. If our nation puts to death 49 or 50 million babies, it will affect your life, period. There is no way to escape, but I didn't do it. It doesn't matter. You live among those that do. And you vote on the laws that we all live by, or you should. It will always affect us. I'm not saying righteous people don't go through difficulties. We're going to get there. 2 Timothy 3. I told you to turn to the uh, 10th verse. I didn't tell you, but now I am. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. (laughs) Can you imagine saying that? Can you imagine writing that? You know all about my faith and patience and persecutions and sufferings. You would never write a statement like that to somebody who knew you if it wasn't true. Don't you love that about your relatives? They will call you out on every fault that you have. This man and the one he's writing to were like father and son. 
if this were not true, we would have a response from Timothy that said, come on, Paul, you're a little fool of yourself, aren't you? Except it was true. Because he knew what it was to be on the wrong side of the double-edged sword, and he got his life right in a single day. How long you have you been contemplating where you want to be? What kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I have endured. Does that sound like death and destruction? The persecutions that he endured? He said, when I compare it with the glory that will be revealed, it's not even worth considering. He considered himself to be content in every situation, experiencing life and prosperity even while they were throwing rocks at his body because he was gaining a better resurrection. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact... Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There is no doubt about it. The people who want to find life and prosperity, the people who want with all of their heart to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength will be persecuted. The scripture declares it. If you are not persecuted, you should wonder why. If you are persecuted, the Bible says you should rejoice. The glory of God rests upon your shoulders. Well, Eric, I don't know. I don't feel very persecuted. Go talk about Jesus loudly enough, long enough, and you will be. You sit back quietly long enough, not sharing long enough, and you better be careful because bad company corrupts good character. You cannot have been given a pardon and your mother not know it. You cannot have been given a pardon unto life when you were condemned to death and your closest friends not know it. I hope to God I never have to do another funeral where I ask the relatives, look, I didn't know this guy. I don't know why you called me. But was he a believer? We think so. You know, religion was always kind of a personal matter to him. Okay, well, you just told me he's damned. How do you want me to handle it? How do you want men to handle that? Well, you know, uh, could you offer some hope? Yes, you can all get saved. There's your hope. You do not have to be where they are. There's your hope. I hope never to be in that situation again. Make your calling and your election secure by the way that you live so that you don't have to make some preacher consider lying at your funeral. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Make no mistake about it, the climate, whether of our nation or the world at large, goes from bad to worse. Why is that? Because people increasingly, as there are more and more people, do not react rightly to the Word of God that is the double-edged sword. You find life and prosperity or you find death and destruction in the very same book, in the very same person of Jesus based on how you react to it. Mankind's already condemned and can be pardoned in Christ. So of course things are bad and getting worse. Turn with me then to Daniel 12. This is on our way deeper into the Tanakh. Daniel 12. This is among the last thing that was said to Daniel. Daniel was perplexed. He had seen some visions. 
he began to understand that godly people would suffer and he didn't understand what this meant. And so he asked. An angel answers him in the ninth verse of Daniel 12. He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined. They find life and prosperity. But the wicked will continue to be wicked. When you see a man that was elected that you knew, didn't have the kind of life that the Bible describes. That was not the fruit on the tree. Why are you surprised and you want a different kind of fruit? Are you surprised when a bird flies? How about a dog barking? Is that a strange anomaly? Did we call those people on channel 121 and ask them to come investigate the paranormal because your dog is barking? It's what they do. Will wicked people do wicked things? This is why Paul said, from wicked people, from doers of wicked comes wickedness. We can't be surprised. So how then do you react to something like this? Slander. Right? Curse the office. Blame everyone around you. Grumble. Complain. These things put you on the wrong side of the sword as well, don't they? So what is a right reaction? What do you do? Let's look into Israel's history. Keep turning to your left. You will go to Kings 8. Recently there was a homicide committed in this country. Actually in a single day on any given day. There are quite a few homicides committed, not just in this country, but in this state. Not just in this state, but in the city of Houston. On any given day, there's at least a homicide. That's statistically speaking. But one homicide here recently caught the news around the world. Because the man being killed himself was a killer. With a medical degree. Maybe as many as 60,000 children had he killed. Why has that one dominated the news? I sent some of you an email from a friend in Israel. Her name is Sherry Mandel. I sat next to her in a conference, a meeting like this. I had no idea who she was, didn't know what was going on. And uh, I was talking to her about my son, Judah. And with tears in her eyes, she leaned over and said, my son was murdered because he's a Jew. What do you say to something like that? I had nothing to say, I just listened. One day he didn't come home from school. And then the knock came on the door. Muslim children beat him to death to honor their God with their fist and with rocks. He was 13. She had an interesting response to the speech given out of Egypt the other day. I forwarded it to a lot of you. You can read it on the Jerusalem Post. Just from a real person, a housewife. Things go from bad to worse. They do. What will your response be? Number one, we need to ascertain where are you with this double-edged sword? It promises life. The Word of God is set before us as life and prosperity or death and destruction. Which are you reaping? Which are you reaping from God? Then, what are you going to do about it? I would say it's evidence that demands a verdict, as one wise man said. Turn with me to 1 Kings 8. We're going to be in Kings 8 for a second because I want to read to you what... A man who is proclaimed to be the wisest and most discerning man among his generation and maybe that the world had seen up until that time. His name was King Shlomo Solomon. 
And when he began to pray in Kings 8, starting in verse 33, he's already in mid-prayer. He had some interesting things to say. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned. Why would Israel be defeated? Well, only if they sinned. The people of God do not lose battles that God has called us to enter into unless we've made ourselves liable to the enemy in some way. Without lifting a sword, Joshua knocks down Jericho simply by doing what the Lord tells him to do. He goes to a smaller, uh, less defensible city named Ai, but because Israel has sinned, they're completely routed. The word used is actually you have become liable to destruction. We are all judged based on how we relate to the Word of God. Do you love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength? If you do, no plan of yours can be thwarted. If you do not, you will reap death and destruction. Period. There is no exclusion. I wish there was. I wish I could say, you know, except for Steve, because I love it. <laughs> except for Christy, because, I mean, she's awesome. All of us will reap what we have sown relating to the Word of God. But it's really better than that. Because none of us get it right. And yet, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, you are relating rightly to His Word even if your actions don't show it all of the time. There's hope. When, you, when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn their back, when they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive. How about that? He says, they'll be defeated because they sin, but they will turn back. You know how you know the difference between those are gods and those who are the world's? It's not the absence or presence of sin. If it were, we would all be damned. You refuse to stay in a situation you know is wrong. You, Teshuba, you are willing to turn your whole life at a moment's notice because you know you must rightly relate to the Word of God. If that is not true about you, you are not gods. You're still a god to yourself. About five times in this chapter, he says, then you will hear and forgive. Solomon knew the heart and character of God because he had just seen Him twice. You will hear and forgive. Wherever you are, on whatever side of that double-edged sword you're on, if you will cry out to your God, the New Testament says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Solomon knew this. He said, you will hear and you will forgive. So why does the world stand condemned already? Because we hear the Word, but we don't call to Him so that He can hear and forgive. In other words, we're wrong, we know it, and we will stand in our obstinance. How else can you define something like Katrina leveling the city of New Orleans in the very next year? The first major function that we have in the city of New Orleans is the Gay and Lesbian Parade. We know we're wrong and we don't care. We see we're on the wrong side of the Word of God. We don't care. What do you do with a city like that? What do you do with the people like that? What do you do with you in the areas that you're like that? I know the Word says do this, but I, mean, I just can't. It's not going to work for me. That's for someone else. It's not for my circumstances. 
if you really knew my circumstances, you would understand why I am the exclusion to this rule. You know how many times as a pastor somebody says, you just don't understand? Jesus never held anybody that was dying of AIDS. Does that mean he didn't understand? We're all dying of sin. We all are. We're dying of sin. And the word has been set before us and it is called life and prosperity. And it is called death and destruction. You know, I can give you medicine that would save your life. But if you don't take it, that medicine's become to you death. This is the gospel. The very thing that could save your life is the thing that proclaims your death if you don't rightly act on it. But why would somebody do that? What kind of stubborn, diseased thinking, what kind of self-righteousness, what kind of blinding pride would cause somebody to know they're reaping death and destruction and not change? Well, I don't know. You tell me. We see it all around us. It's dressed best in church clothes. We're the worst. We're the absolute worst. Because inwardly we know, but we look around we tell everybody, I'm doing just fine. Your heart is broken because you've ruined yet another marriage. Your heart is broken because your own kids don't love you. Your heart is broken because the people closest to you in your life you abuse. But when you get in a group like this, you don't go fall on your face and say, help me. You don't go grab somebody and say, brother, pray with me. What do we do? I'm okay. How you doing? You all right? What you doing for a living these days? Things going okay? You making enough money? Everything that doesn't matter and everything that is destined to burn. Why is that? Why are we not cut to the heart? Why are we so image conscious? Now the first commandment was you shall have no gods beside me, alongside me. The second was you shall have no graven image. What happens when people made in God's image become idols to themselves? When you are your own graven image. When you care more about the way people perceive you than God perceiving you the right way. What happens? Well, you have a nation of people that 80% say they're Christians, but they'll elect a man that loves the Muslim world more than the Christian world. That's what happens. You have a nation full of people that are just fine with killing 50 million babies a year. Or since Roe v. Wade. 50 million. 50 million. You know, I doubt seriously that all of Moab sacrificed that many babies in the fire of Moab. I doubt seriously that they were able to kill 50 million in the fires of Moldav. Jennifer and I watched a movie the other day and we had to stand up and just walk out of the room. A man asked a woman if she has birth control because they were sinning. She said, well, I'm very pro-choice. What's wrong when that's a, a comedy line in a movie now? What's wrong? You've been around people that have heard John 3.16 all of their life but have never read the 17th and 18th verse. You've been around people that have lived long enough around the Christian world to just be callous to it, to be inoculated from it. You've been around preachers who told you that you'll be rewarded, you'll be rewarded, we'll give you donuts right now if you come forward and get saved, pizza on Wednesday nights, we'll, bat, we'll, we'll, we'll babysit your kids for you, we'll tell you you're wonderful. We'll dress up for something if you don't like this, we'll, we'll, we'll preach it differently. You don't like the way I dress? I'll dress better. You want a different building? We'll give you a different building. But if never told you, you will absolutely burn. No matter who you are. If you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and it show up in your life. The last child's funeral I did, I told the truth. Some of you were there. 
people came to the casket and got saved at the casket. There's only a few that were mad at me. You want to guess who they were? That's right. The other preachers in the group. Why would they be mad? You ought to read Kings 13 sometime. That's an interesting chapter. But we're not going to do that. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned. Why is there no rain? Because the people sinned. I want you to understand something. The Word of God and our response to it will always produce a response from God. Psalm 85 says, When faithfulness springs up from the earth, righteousness looks down. This means that when the Word becomes clear to Casey and Casey acts on it, that will receive from God a reaction. When Casey does not act on it, that will receive from God a reaction. The Word will always be birthing in your life, life and prosperity, or death and destruction. And this is God's means of correcting us, of disciplining us. In His discipline, there is always hope. Every time Solomon says something like this, he follows with, because when they pray, you will hear and you will forgive. This is not discipline unto death for us, for the world that very well may be. For us, it is discipline with the opportunity for life. Our king has said certain things are true. How we react to it shows what we think about him. You cannot hate his spirit, hate his message, and claim to love him. You cannot call every time his spirit manifests the devil and call him Lord. That doesn't work. That kind of confused, twisted thinking builds enormous churches but it saves no souls you cannot meet before thousands of people and simply tell them you're wonderful your life is great get motivated and think that God's going to be pleased with that maybe a wonderful start maybe a wonderful start to say you have the potential to be these things but if you're not examining your life and changing your ways you're not growing closer to Jesus my job as a born-again, sold-out believer is to embrace this Word. Let its searing conviction fall in my heart so that I will change. My job as a pastor is to slap you in the face, stomp upon your toes, be a righteous man that strikes you over and over and over so that you have a chance to wake up in areas you are sleeping. We found a nation at sleep. A nation that is destined for a drought. Because God cannot send rain on the nation that is sinning. He cannot do it. His word says He will not do it. His word says He will withhold it. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned. We read that. Then 35. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because the people have sinned. Verse 37. When famine or plague comes to this land or blight or mildew or locusts or grasshoppers, when the enemy besieges them, on and on and on because they had sinned. Each time he says, hear and forgive. One time about this famine, look at verse 36. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live. Keep your finger here because we're coming back, but turn to the very first psalm. Psalms is a book of songs. S-O-N-G-S. In Hebrew, they have beautiful melodies. In Hebrew, they're easily memorized. In the very first psalm, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. 
How do you walk in counsel? Think about that. I went to him and I got some counsel. What did that mean? He talked to me for a while. I feel better about myself. That's not biblical counsel. That's not biblical belief in anything. To a Hebrew, when you hear something that you believe, it shows up in your daily walk. This is why Adam walked with God. It's why Enoch walked with God and was no more. In fact, Noah in Genesis 6-9 was said to walk with God. In Genesis 48-15, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were said to walk with God. In Deuteronomy 5-33, walk in the ways of our God. 8-6, walk in the way that the Lord God has commanded you. 10-12, walk in the Lord's command. And indeed, about 19 other times in the book of Deuteronomy. Psalm 15, walk in the Lord. It goes on and on and on. But if this were an American book, it would say, believe the Lord. Because we have reduced the gospel to something that you can bury inside you that no one can see. We've reduced the gospel to knowing something is true but doing nothing about it. We wonder why the heavens are shut up and yield no rain. How many times have you heard a message and gone, I need to do something differently and walked out and not done it? Walking with God. Our reaction to the Word is called our walk with God. It's also called fruit. It's also called garments of righteousness. It's called a lot of things in the Word. And you know what? People that showed up at wedding feast without their garments of righteousness were thrown out. Trees that had no fruit were cut down and burned in the fire. And Christians with no walk well, he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You tell me what happens to those branches that got cut off. We've reinterpreted that one too. You can't, saints. You cannot. So, well, Erica, I mean, are, are you mad at me? No. I want you to get what God has said is yours. I don't want us to be in the state of natural man, which is damned. I want us to react rightly to the Word. Hear me, saints, as if your life depended upon it. Because it does. Your life depends upon it. Anybody know a Christian that's been divorced? Yes. Yeah. I'm not throwing a stone at any Christian that's been divorced. What I'm trying to tell you is, whether saved or not saved, our reaction to the Word is what we reap. Do you understand that? Anybody know Christians that have experienced horrible, gut-wrenching loss that was not the devil? I'm sorry, that was not God? Yeah, I, I do too. I do too. Our reaction to the Word will create a reaction from God. Back to 1 Kings 8. I want to finish Solomon's prayer. I need to talk to you about the kings of Israel and then get to our drought. Look at verse 37. When famine or plague to the land or blight or mildew, locusts, or grasshoppers, or when the enemy besieges in any of the cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of the afflictions of his own heart. When you pray, what are you? Aware of the afflictions of our own hearts. I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time in my life aware of other people's afflictions and blind to my own. 
Have you never been that way? Able to clearly, keenly, with laser-like precision, point out everyone else's flaws and be completely blind to your own? You want God to hear you? You want Him to forgive you? It starts with you understanding you. It starts with you getting real with Him about the position you're in. It starts there. There is no other place to start. Brother Goon, who's been beaten many times for the gospel, in prison many years for the gospel, after touring America, said they're trying to run in a race without ever starting at the starting line. They're trying to pick up in Christianity, blessed, saved, empowered, miracle power for the hour, and they never started at the starting line, which is true repentance, throwing down every idol, examining your own heart. They've just picked up a mantra, a self-help gospel light version. I shouldn't use that word gospel light. There is no such thing as gospel light. And I'm certainly not picking on anybody that those words have been associated with. The truth is, I love everybody who is preaching about Jesus. I really do. It's always easy to pick on some big church in your area. It helps you hide your own flaws. I don't think the problem is with our big churches. I think the problem is with the masses of people. It's not a few who do something wrong that is really scary. It's the masses that sit by in silence while it happens. Let me ask you something. Let's suppose for a moment that I were in error. And you came to my church week after week after week. Who's giving the bigger testimony? The man who's in error or the thousands that follow him in that error? But we like to hang it on one person's neck, don't we? All the time, we're innocent. The gospel is a painful look into the mirror that is God's righteousness, and you examine yourself against it. And let me ask you, saints, how do you stack up? Some of you need to be proud. You have made such strides. When I hear you're working on each other's cars, when you're praying for each other while you're sick, when you're traveling distances to be close to Jesus, when you're standing in the midst of your relatives who are all lukewarm and you're ablaze. This is something to be proud of. But if you're not changing your mind, you are not growing. And there is no room to coast. We like to point at how evil the days are. The more evil the days, the more righteous the righteous are supposed to be. Everybody's watching the news going, something's wrong, and you're right. There's going to be an opportunity. A great drought is coming. I tried to finish this prayer several times and I can't do it, so we're going to move on. <laughs> he asks God to consider all that a man does, but he never says anything about what the man believes. Let's move on. Does that sound like a good plan to you? Moving on? By the way, famines, when we talk about famines, we do need to know something. I'm not going to read it to you, but Amos 8:11 speaks of famines and says, The day is coming, declares the Sovereign Lord. When there is a famine, it will be given throughout the land, but not a famine where men thirst or hunger for food or water. It will be a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. You know, Israel experienced 400 years without a national prophet. 400 years. If you've come to church even once in the last 40 years, or four years, or four months, or four services. 
and you felt like God witnessed something to your heart, spoke a word to you, you are fortunate. What did you do with it? What did you do with it? How did you respond? Did you say, thank you, sir, just give me another? Without ever considering it? Say, oh, that's great, that's great. Did we write it in our notebooks, tape record it, run like charismatics from meeting to meeting, always wanting more, 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 but never doing? Or did you treat it like something that was beautiful? Something that was treasured? Did you polish it, pull it out every day, reflect on it, look at your own reflection in it? Did you react rightly to it? The problem in America is not that we've never heard John 3.16. It's that we've heard it so much, it's all we think there is. The problem in the church is not that God does not speak. It's that He's spoken so much, we've become <coughs> deaf to it. Just like a teenager to their parents. Insolent. Rebellion. From John 3.16, which we're not in, from Kings 8, we're going to move to Kings 12. Something happens in Israel. From the days of Solomon, which were Israel's golden time period, civil war breaks out. Solomon did not walk with God. And we found out that although God loved Solomon very much, although God had changed his name, changed his heart, promised him more than anybody had ever received in all of the world, and so equipped him, because he did not react rightly to the Word of God, God punished him. Because that's what God does. He judges everybody by the same exact standard. And if He tells you, don't go to Egypt and get horses, don't get many wives, and don't amass for yourself large amounts of gold and silver, and you do all three of those things, you know what will happen? He will squish you. He will. As surely as gravity works, God's law works the exact same way. So God says to him, you know, Solomon, I heard your very first decision. What was considered wise among wise among wise. When two women were arguing over a baby, you said, cut it in two. Give half to each one. He said, so I'm going to cut your kingdom in two. The kingdom, I said, would be yours always. It's going to have a civil war. And it will happen in your son's lifetime. Out of his own mouth, he pronounced his judgment and didn't even know it. Do you know that you do the same thing every time you judge someone else? Because whatever measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I hate people who drive that way. God, I hope you never run a stop sign. See now how stupid they are? Yeah. And what I hear is the voice of wisdom. We need to think about that. We will give an account for every idle word. Idle words are not the words between the other words. Idle words are words that are spoken that were not inspired. Did you know we have an obligation to speak as if God were speaking through us? For guys like me that talk a lot, that's scary. We're called to a high standard, saints. A high standard. Most of my preaching and teaching is about trying to get you to take that seriously. Because I know the day is coming when it will be too late, and if you haven't, only a few will be saved. I don't know what a few is. It's more than Elijah thought there were. He said, there's only one, and God said, I've got 7,000. But somehow or another, I don't think it's 80% of a nation that claims to be Christian. It must mean there's a lot of people that go to church and think they're okay. And aren't. In the 12th chapter, we have a guy named Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the king of the northern kingdom in Israel, the ten tribes. The southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, is the Davidic dynasty. This is Solomon's son, Rehoboam, 
It is kings like uh, Asa, kings that were uh, in large part good. But Israel is plagued by civil war. And because things go from bad to worse, Jeroboam in the 12th chapter is uh, building shrines in high places. By the 14th chapter, God says of Jeroboam that he had done more evil in the ninth verse, 14.9, you have done more evil than all who lived before you. He was more evil than all who had lived before him. You know, God had put him in authority though. God put him in the position, but he did not handle it wisely. And he was more evil than all before him. Turn with me to 16.9. I'm not going to read you some of these things because it take too long. We're going to start in 1629, but I need to tell you what's happened between there and here. This civil war has gone on. Sometimes the kings are at peace, sometimes they're fighting. In the northern kingdom, by this time, seven kings have taken place. During the same time period in the northern kingdom, two have taken place. The reason in the southern kingdom we're going through kings like grapes is because they're wicked and God is killing them. The reason that's not happening in the north it's because for the most part, they're serving God. Men like Asa served God 40 some odd years. Although you need to read about the end of his life. That's interesting. Jeroboam did more evil than anybody before him. Nadab was his successor. And Nadab was killed by the next king, Basha. Basha worked for Nadab and killed him. Basha was so bad that his entire house was cut off from before the Lord. Elah was murdered by his successor, the next king, Zimri. Zimri committed suicide by locking himself in the palace, just like in the movie Lord of the Rings, and lighting the palace on fire. It's going from bad to worse. We get to a guy named Omri, who is Ahab's father. He's the sixth in line. And Omri has built... up Samaria as an alternative to Jerusalem. You don't have to go worship the Lord there because Samaria has got everything Jerusalem's got. It's funny, in America, the anti-Jerusalem is Las Vegas. But there's about ten other cities that are fighting to be just as evil, just as wicked, and actually in their advertising campaigns say you don't have to go to Las Vegas, you can do the same thing here. It's a little bit like what Samaria was. Omri did more evil than all of the kings before him. I want you to understand, Jeroboam, more evil than anybody else. Omri, more evil than everybody before him. What's that mean? He's even worse than Jeroboam. There is a progressive nature to sin. It always takes you further than you wanted to go. It always debases you further than you were willing to be debased. It always works that way. If you want those scriptures, I'll give them to you afterwards. But every king that I just listed, one through seven, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Every one of them. So what do you think God's response has got to be? There's coming a famine. There's coming a drought. In 1629, in the 38th year of Asa. That says something in and of itself. 
It's the 38th year of Asa's reign. We've been through seven others in the other kingdom. Who do you think has God's favor? One's experiencing life and prosperity. What are the others experiencing? Death and destruction. By the way, about Jeroboam, God said something very interesting. You teenagers, if you're ever looking for something in the Bible that's interesting, when God says, I'm going to burn your whole house in the same way that a man burns dung, I would say that's pretty interesting. When I was a teenager, I liked to hear stories like that. Crude little boys. God himself spoke about a king and said, I'm going to burn you the way a man burns dung. Then he said, dogs are going to eat your descendants. And you know what? They did. They did. You have to really stress in the New Testament find anything that interesting. You have to find another king in Israel who claimed that his words were the words of a god, and he got eaten by worms. It would be one thing to get devoured by a shark, but can you imagine how long it would take to get eaten by worms? Everybody's awake though now, huh? Okay, so 1629. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Jeroboam, more evil than anybody before him. Omri, six kings later, more evil than all of those kings. His son Ahab, more evil than Omri. I don't know why my kids act the way that they do. Really? You really don't? I bet you don't know where they heard those words either, huh? Yeah. People tell preachers all kinds of lies. It is so funny. It is hilarious. I don't know where he heard that. I bet you don't. Yeah, because you didn't bring the TV in your home. You didn't say that to your husband yesterday. Ask the kids. They'll tell you. When somebody says, I don't know where my kid heard that. Say, okay, I'm sorry. Let's investigate this matter. Where, little Johnny, did you hear that? parent will rush that kid into another room. I promise. My son stood up and told the church I watch bad movies. Whole church. My dad watches bad movies. Oh, Judah, what are you talking about? That show where that man hit that other man? Rocky. But, I, but you need to understand something. My son's perception at five years old was that that was a bad movie. What does that mean dad should not have done? Hear this. Say, wait, you shouldn't have let your son watch that movie with you. No, dad should not have watched the movie. Otherwise, I'm telling my son not to do something that he sees dad doing. But isn't that really the problem with all of American Christianity? We know better than to do it, and we do it anyway. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He did not consider, he considered it trivial to commit the sons of Jeroboam's son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. I want to tell you why my mind went here. I recently heard a national figure, somebody who represents our entire nation, speak about Islam in a way that lended it merit. Quoted a quote-unquote holy text that I'm telling you is from the pit of hell. It is damning millions upon millions of people and wreaking untold death and destruction on the world. The Koran is of the devil. 
But the leader of a nation quoted it in a way that gave it substance and merit and respectability. Made me think of this. Set up a temple to Baal and worshipped him. Baal had been worshipped in Israel for a long time, but you had to sneak off into a dark alley in a back corner called the High Place to do it. Now, Baal had a temple right alongside the temple of the Lord God. You need to understand something. This is not all that different than any Christian does when we say, I love you, Lord. But you also have other loves in your life. The very first command is not don't worship other gods. It's don't worship other gods alongside or with your God. See, the only thing worse than saying Baal's my God and I hate the living God would be to say, no, I think they're both great. Because this confuses people. At least when somebody is sold out for the devil and you know it, you know where they stand. But what do you do? What do you do when the same group of people that says, I love Yahweh God also visits the temple to Baal? Well, if anybody would know what you do, it would be us because it's what our nation does. It's what our nation does. But we don't have to. I am not condemned to my nation's destiny. In fact, I'm a citizen of a Jerusalem that's from above. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings before him. I want to tell you, an Asherah pole was not just a pole. It's a sacred grove of trees to a goddess named Astrith. And there were ongoing, successive, continual... Uh, little ones in the room. Uh, sexually perverse activities that were occurring there. This is a king in Israel. And he set this up. In Ahab's time, Hillel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. Jericho was a kingdom that symbolized the world. And so when Joshua, whose name means Jesus, Yahweh saves, destroyed it, he said, may this never be rebuilt. And if it is, it will be at the cost of a man's firstborn son. See, God destroys this world system so that he can rebuild the world at the cost of his firstborn son, but rebuild it in the image of God. He did not want another corrupt creation. And Jericho was a symbol of this. This man rebuilds Jericho. So what we're seeing is Israel's in a time period where they have gone so far from God that they are rebuilding the pagan idolatry that was in Israel before they got there. In other words, it's like a man who has been saved and has backslidden like a dog going back to his own vomit. And Hebrews says he's worse off in the end than he would have been in the beginning. The land is now more polluted than it would have been if they never got there. Because Yahweh God is being worshipped right alongside Baal. Syncretism. You know, if you don't believe me that Ahab worshipped God, look at his kids' names. He's got two sons. One is Joram, the Lord is exalted. The other is Azahiah, the Lord grasps. He named his kids things that would honor God while he was worshiping Baal. What do you do with the people that have no fear left of God? That say God blesses, God blesses, God blesses, but there is no second side to the sword. Is that really Christianity, you think? What you do is you send a drought. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tish in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, 
You need to understand whom I serve is a technical expression. If you show up and you say, hey, I'm the driller, and you're on a drilling rig, they want to know who sent you and who you work for. So you don't just say, I'm the driller. Say, I'm the driller from Axis Drilling. If you show up as a diplomat in a foreign court, you need to say what head of state sent you. Because you're not there under your own authority. You are there by the commission of someone else. Elijah, whose name uh, awesome, the Lord is God, <laughs> stands and says, the God whom I serve. I am here with an official responsibility because there's a God I stand before, a God in whose service I'm in. He's like a secretary of state sent from the heavens. And listen to what he proclaims. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. As God's representative, there will be no rain in this land unless I say there will. And I'm telling you, there will be none because God cannot bless this situation. Why would God do something like that? Well, this is about the year 850. Somewhere near the year 1000, Solomon had prayed. Lord, when you cut off our nation's reign because we've sinned and we repent, hear us and forgive us. God brings hardship into our lives just as well as the enemy does. But when the enemy does it, he brings it into your life to kill you. When God does it, He brings it into your life to turn you. He figures if you experience what it is to ignore His Word, then you will heed His Word. And He desires that all men be saved. I don't have time to preach about Elijah at the Kiriath Ravine, but I do want to tell you, if God has to fly on your food on ravens, if you love Him, He'll do it. If He has to feed you, with manna scraped off the ground. He'll do it. So much so that when you're in a famine, Jeremiah 17, 8 says, you'll be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. And it never fails to bear fruit. There is a drought coming, saints, and I'm not telling you because I want you to be scared. I'm telling you that when we as a people ignore God's Word, there can only be one reaction. And it's an opportunity for us. Because God Himself is not trying to destroy this nation or anybody that you know. He desires that all men be saved. How we act in the drought will determine how they fare. Look at verse 7. Sometime later the brook dried up. So much for no troubles for the people of God. Is your problem that you don't have a job? Is your problem that you're sick? Is your problem that you face some hardship? None of those things are problems. Because you serve God and He's your source. Your brook can dry up and God will simply feed you another way. You can get sick and God will simply heal you. Or allow you to glorify Him in the sickness. Our God is our source. Our circumstances aren't. This is the first thing you need to know about a drought. But how do you know that if everybody's amply supplied? If everybody has all they need in abundance, how do you know who's depending on God and who's simply depending upon the abundance of their provision? You only know it when everybody's experiencing scarcity. 
Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. If you were going to be supplied with food, is there anybody that would choose a widow? You can speak to me. No. Probably not. You're probably not going to go pick out a nursing home, ask for the oldest old lady in there, and say, hey, you know, I thought I'd stop by and let you feed me. <laughs> well, how about if you knew there was one nursing home a long ways away, and uh, they were all foreign to you, right? That's just for argument's sake. Say that you're Norwegian. Are you going to go uh, to the furthest parts of South Africa to a nursing home and say, hey, look, uh, whoever in here is a widow, would you feed me? Probably not. Huh? It's pretty awkward. Maybe even a little humbling. Might require some trust and some obedience. Let's see if Elijah does it. So he went to Zarephath, and then he came to the town gate. A widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I have a drink? Can you imagine how hard that must have been to say? Why was there no water? And who proclaimed the drought? He did. He stood up as God's representative and said, There will be no water. And so there was no water. And then he shows up to a foreign widow and says, Give me some water. If you didn't know better, this kind of faith looks almost arrogant, doesn't it? If you didn't know that God had told him this, you would think that this is audacious at the very least. But God told him and he's being obedient. Listen to what happens. Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he said, and please bring me a piece of bread. It sounds almost like Elijah doesn't expect that this woman's provision belongs to her, but that the earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it, and she's just the custodian of it, and God has said, it's mine. It's for you, Elijah. You know, we're funny. We take ownership of everything that we have, and God says none of it belongs to us. It shouldn't be all that hard for you to part with things if they belong to God anyway, should it? As surely as the Lord God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Well, at least he sent her to a, to a widow that was, he sent him to a widow that was upbeat, that was happy, that could be a good source of encouragement for him. When God sends a drought... He also sends His people out among the masses, the discouraged, those that have no hope and maybe even have the sentence of death in their heart. Because when God keeps you alive in a famine, you know there is a God. He has to bring human beings to the end of their own strength so that He can show them where they end and He begins. Let me ask you, did it have to take seven kings, one worse than the next, to get them to a point where they would hear from God? But it did. How many years has it taken you to get to a place where you're willing to consider His Word as real in your life? Some of you may still not be there. How many times do you have to read death and destruction before you reach the end of your provision and say, okay, God, I'm sorry. What is it that you want? And you mean it. 
Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. I hope that he didn't mean that literally. Go home, eat it, and die. But first, make me a small cake of bread from what you have and bring it to me. I want you to notice something. Before God will do anything about your scenario, before He will do anything to bring rain into your life, anything to cure your personal drought, you must put Him first. Period. You cannot say, Lord, when you fix my problems, I will serve you. It will never happen. You will surely go to hell. But, when you say, Lord, I will first do what you have said, whether I'm saved from this fire or not, then you have hope. Then you have hope. First, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The flour, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on this land. For this woman to do this, she must believe Elijah. And she does it. Wouldn't you think that somebody who experiences supernatural provision like this would become an immediate believer? I've been very surprised in my life to find people healed of AIDS. Healed. Actually, blood before and after healed of AIDS. They went to prison for embezzlement. Said, well, it must have been a false miracle. No, it was not. I was there. I have seen people whose lives were spared only to return to their own vomit. And I've been amazed. And yet, how many times in my life, after seeing all that I've seen, have I been tempted to give up on God? Thank God He's been faithful to me where I haven't been faithful to Him. By grace and mercy you stand. Watch this. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. First make me... Verse 15. So... Uh, let's see. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. He kept it. The only thing keeping God from keeping His promises to us is our reaction to what He has set before us life and death. The truth is He will always keep His promise. And He has promised you life if you react rightly and death if you don't. And He will keep His word. He is not a liar. How good that we should find life. Huh? Amazing. This woman's still not saved. And she's not saved because she's speaking about Elijah and the God of Elijah and Elijah's God. But there is no personal relationship there. This is where most of the church is. Well, yeah, if pastor prays, they'll get healed, but if I pray, I mean, we should have pastor do it. Most of the church is in the situation where we know about God like we know about Bo Jackson. But we don't know Bo Jackson, and most don't know God. We are surrounded by knowledge of Him, but have no interaction with Him. So look what God appointed in the middle of a drought. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse. Things go that way. And finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Is that a normal response? You ever been around anybody and you reminded them of sin? I was sitting in the car business one time in the F&I office. There's a real sinner for sin. 
the financing office at a car dealership. <laughs> if there was ever an epicenter that lies could spin out of, an <laughs> F&I is one of them. So much so that now they put video cameras in there so that everybody will know what was actually said. When I was in the car business, they didn't do that. We actually used to go hide and look through the two-way glass to watch the people's reactions as the F&I man began to tell them lies. I was sitting in the F&I office and my boss leaned over. By the way, God had told me to shut my mouth there and quit preaching. My boss leaned over and said, when I'm around you, I'm convicted of sin in my life. That's the best compliment I've ever been paid. Ever. I thought I was a failure because I was not speaking. It's when I began to learn God cared more about what you do than what you say. It's a message that shaped my life. She is reminded of her sin simply by being around him. And now she is blaming Elijah for her son dying. And the reason she is is because she feels bad when she's around Elijah. She just doesn't feel good about herself. She's been watching Oprah, and Oprah's told her that she should feel good about herself. She turned on and watched a few pastors that told her she should feel good about herself. When the truth is, she needed to come to the gut-wrenching realization that she was on the wrong side of God's Word so that she really could feel good about herself. Her words spoke what she thought. Her thoughts betrayed her. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying. You know, to overlook an offense is almost a supernatural thing. <clears throat> Proverbs 19.11 says a man's patience gives him wisdom. It's to his glory to overlook an offense. If somebody accused you of killing their kid, would you help them? And isn't this kind of a slap in the face? But the reason a drought comes is so that God can discipline those he loves. So that he can give a chance for people to see hope in the midst of despair. What better way could Elijah show his love and concern for the woman that when she slaps him, he loves her? If there is a drought coming in our nation, it is so that we can shine. It's so that we can care for those who are in need. It's so that we can show them how to put God first and find provision even in a famine. So should you be sad if there's a famine coming? Not really. In fact, it might be a chance for the church to really be born in our nation. Apathy kills the church where adversity makes it stronger. Affluence is a death sentence for the church. The more silver and gold the church has, the less faith it has. I know this message is going so long. I'm not in a particular hurt. I know, your butts start to hurt in the seeds, and there's all these things we're supposed to do, but today's potluck Sunday, and you won't even have to drive anywhere to eat. <laughs> so I got drive time. <laughs> there's a drive-by media, and I've got drive time. <laughs> Give me your son, Elijah replied, and he took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Now I want to tell you something. I've met a lot of really cool people. And some of the most righteous, awesome people I know are protective of their pillows. And their sheets. And their beds. Because there's just something about what you have to crawl into each night. In fact, 
I get a little upset when my kids are playing in the sandbox and sweaty and nasty and got Cheez-Its in their ears and, <laughs> and come and jump right in my bed. Your bed is like the ultimate expression of your close personal space. It's an interesting little experiment. You want to close your eyes and visualize ants and little bed bugs crawling around? Probably not, huh? You won't sleep tonight. Of all the places that he could put this dead body, he put him in his close personal space. Saints, if we want to be in a drought and see life, we need to be willing to overlook offense. We need to be willing to take those who are dead and bring them right into the center of our lives and our homes. The day, is there anybody in here that got saved from watching TV? It happens occasionally. No, not one. Anybody in here got saved alone simply by reading a track? One. Anybody in here got saved without anybody witnessing to them personally? It's amazing. It's amazing. Most of us get saved because we've rubbed shoulders with somebody that has life. Most of us get saved because we are around somebody in a situation that makes us want to buckle and they seem to have answers. This is how the Scripture can boldly proclaim be ready to give an answer for everyone who asks you. Because God is faithful to put you in a circumstance where if you are a Christian they will know this. And we'll pray, rapture me, rapture me, rapture me. It's not a comment on the doctrine of rapture. It's a comment on man's desire to escape everything difficult. God puts you in the difficult so that He can do a miracle. He puts you in the impossible so He can do a bigger miracle. Elijah takes this kid into his bed in a holy way, not the Roman Catholic thing. Then he cried out to the Lord. Then he cried out to the Lord. O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? This is the same question asked in John 9. In John 9, 3, is this person this way because he sinned or his parents sinned? Neither, but that God might have an opportunity to display His glory. Why is there tragedy in your life if you're on the right side of God? so that God might display His glory. Why does a famous Christian singer who truly loves the Lord with all of his heart, son die, get run over by a car? Because God's glory can be displayed in his life. When Christians experience hardship, it is for God's glory. When lost people or Christians that act lost experience hardship, because they're reaping the death and destruction from ignoring God's Word. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried, O oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. He stretched out on this child, eye to eye, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, chest to chest. We need to take the lost into our close personal space. We need to be willing to get eye to eye on their level heart to heart, face to face. If we are unwilling to do this, they cannot find hope. People do not get saved from literature left behind. They don't get saved from watching passive communication. 
people truly get saved when you interact with them in the same way that leaven does with flour and you will cause them to rise. This is God's method of salvation. Why three times? Because it didn't work the first two. That's why. And if it hadn't worked the third, Elijah would still be there doing this until it did. One time they even threw a dead body on Elijah's bones. And when it touched his bones, it got up. Because even in Elijah's death, there was life. Saints, there's a message in that. There is a message in that. Oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Is that redundant? Tell me something. Is that redundant to say the boy's life returned to him and he lived? It is not redundant because lots of people are alive and dead. They are walking dead men. Because the Word says that He has set life and death before you. Everybody He said that to was physically alive. But your reaction to the Word of God determines whether or not you are spiritually living or dying. And saints, even this body can be struck down, but I am living every day. You understand the difference? By the way, this woman gets born again. You want to know how to get your family born again? Let them see the resurrection of the dead in you. It may take a little while. They may even say things like, I'll never set foot in your church. And then they become leaders in your church. God does that. You take a man who's persecuting and killing the church and make him the leader of it. He doesn't even have to wear a funny hat. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. What do you mean she didn't know it before? God had been providing for her. The prosperity gospel is a lie, saints. Nobody gets saved because they see how rich somebody is. Provision never saved anybody. We get saved when we see dead people coming to life. I tell you, Israel could receive no rain. In fact, 18.1, after seven years, Elijah says, I'm about to send rain. Israel could receive no rain and America and you as an individual will receive no rain until we do something. The great sin of Jeroboam was that he introduced idolatry. The great sin of Omri was that he furthered that idolatry and he gave it national status. The great sin of Ahab... I know everybody thinks it's his wife. That's another message. It's not. The great sin of Ahab is that he practiced syncretism on a national level. Worship God alongside Baal. The very first command God ever gave was you shall have no God besides me or alongside me. Because it's confusing. Nobody will know whether you're in life or death. So Elijah had one message before rain could come. It's the same message we give you today. Turn to 1821. 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets of Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. I'm telling you today, saints, you cannot follow Baal and follow God. If you do, 
your drought will get more and more severe. It would be better that you followed Baal than that you tried to follow both. I'm simply saying pick a side and get on it. But you do need to read the rest of the story because we don't have time to death. Everybody who chose Baal's side was put to death in the same chapter. Because the wrong side of the double-edged sword that is the Word of God will wreak death and destruction 100% of the time. And by the way, the same God that shut up the heavens to bring the drought in the 44th and 5th verse sent such heavy rain to bless the land for doing what was right. Because as Solomon said, he is waiting to hear and to forgive. The question is, what will you do with it? What will you do with it? If you have not seen the movie Faith Like Potatoes, I never recommend movies. But I liked Faith Like Potatoes. There's a man named Angus. And I'm going to read you two lines from his biography. The El Nino drought of the late 90s had resulted in complete devastation for local farmers. Coupled with the fact that they were worn out from having to deal with violence on a daily basis. He's in South Africa. So Angus, having just been born again, rented a soccer stadium. Put 35,000 people in it. And his message, I'm quoting him, is to hell with El Nino. We're going to plant this year. And we're going to plant potatoes. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Strange way for a preacher to speak. It's okay, God called him to be a farmer first. He had been warned from the biography here. Scientists had warned the farmers not to plant that season unless they had irrigated fields. And Angus knew very well that he didn't have any irrigation. Planting potatoes would be a massive risk since it was the most water-intensive crop that could be planted. Traditionally, he was a maize or cattle farmer. He had never done this before. So he went back to his farm, mortgaged everything, and hired two additional farms. Faith always borders on your responsibility. And he planted potatoes in the dust. Can't see potatoes grow. They grow beneath the surface. Do I have to tell you what God did for the man? He had the largest potato harvest that they had ever seen. And he announced it to 35,000 people in the middle of a drought. God will cause a drought so that you can announce hope and people be saved. I watched the man on video take somebody's leg that had a steel rod from ankle to mid-thigh, pray, bend the man's knee with the rod in it, and walk off the stage. God will send you into the worst possible scenario to bring life to those with death sentences. You just have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. You have to be willing to rub shoulders, to get nose to nose, mouth to mouth, shoulder to shoulder, to bring them into your personal space, to be offended without being offended. And then God will do amazing miracles among you. It's Angus that said, the condition for a miracle is difficulty. However, the condition for a great miracle is not difficulty. It's impossibility. Give God the impossible today. Give Him the difficult. And let Him give you His miraculous, life-changing power. And then go to work. Y'all stand to your feet. If you've not seen that movie, you need to.
I would never tell you that about a movie if it weren't true. And if you really want to be blessed, watch the special features afterwards that contain him, not actors. When simple people, ordinary people, get touched by the master, they do extraordinary things. And the mark of real men and women of God is they will not allow themselves to be lifted up. They will not allow themselves to be exalted and their names are not written across giant placards. You know, I thought about sending money to Angus. I couldn't even figure out how to do it because he doesn't accept donations on his website. That's awesome. The most awesome thing about Angus is when I look out into this crowd, I don't see anybody here that I think couldn't compare with him verbally or physically or any other way. Truthfully, he's getting to be kind of an old man. But because he's willing, God's doing an amazing thing in years of drought in Zambia. Does it have to be in Zambia or could it be here? Saints, I think the drought's coming. What will you do? Join hands. Mighty God. Lord, we know that you require idols to be purged from our heart before rain can truly fall. We pray for mercy for this nation. Lord, not mercy because we desire to dwell in prosperity. We pray for mercy because we would like to see people that think that they're well-to-do, truly well-off in you. Lord, we prefer to go to other countries because they're hungry for you. We prefer, mighty God, the mission fields. But the mission fields are not our home. This is our home. Lord, we don't want to become as calloused as they are. We're asking, Lord, that you would give us a heart to see the lost and the dying on the church pews saved in this nation. Lord, that you would give us the opportunity to see the remnant out of the once great America saved. Lord, give us the lost for our inheritance. We will not lie to them. We will not pat them on the back. We will tell them the truth about your word and your standards. Lord, create a great hunger out there. Lord, let the famine drive them to you. We lift up your great name. We ask for this neighborhood behind us, Lord God. We ask for the city of Sugarland. We lift up your great name. Lord, if you speak it, we will do it. We love you and you are our King. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.